how very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. Childish manner, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just strangely enough, it was a rush, a teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hey, folks. Welcome to Strange Talk Podcast. And on this episode, it is going to be all about demonic possessions. Why did I sound like that? I don't know. I tried to went for a demon voice because in media and movies, we and even like videos of supposed um, demonic possessions or people that claim that they're being possessed by a demon or the devil, they always sound like they sound like a fucking uh, cancer, like throat cancer patient. <laughs> okay, so before I get on to the actual episode, I am going to just come out and say this right now. I am not one that believes in demonic possession. I don't believe in it whatsoever. I find it fascinating. It, it is very fascinating. And if I ever found like concrete evidence, you know, I'm a person of like, I need to see the evidence. And one could, yes, argue like, well, have you ever seen a million dollars? No. But how do you know it's real then if you've never seen it? Well, fuck you, buddy, is what I say to you. But no, seriously, I am one that would – I have to see it in order to believe it. And it's, we're not talking about Santa Claus type of shit. We're talking about demonic possession, okay? I have to see it to believe it. I have to – if I, I, would, I would love to actually participate in exorcism, to be completely honest with you. And I know there's people who are superstitious, like my fiance. She's very superstitious when it comes to demonic possessions. She doesn't even like the fact that I have the book The Exorcist. She thinks that like a demon will somehow possess me or my daughter or herself. That's how much she kind of believes in demonic possession and stuff like that. So she doesn't really fuck around with that. So she kind of hates the fact that I even wanted to do this episode because of the research. Because when I was doing the research, I was watching a video about demonic possession. And she was like, do you really have to watch that right now? We're trying to eat dinner. And I was like, sorry, my bad. But anyways, so yeah, uh, having said that, I'm not really one that believes in it. If you are free to believe whatever you feel, that doesn't mean I'm here to tell you that, no, what you believe in is wrong. You're fucking dumb. No, you want to believe in it. That's fine. I just personally don't believe in demonic possessions because I believe that the people that are suffering from these supposed demonic possessions are just people who are seriously disturbed or have some form of mental illness or they're just seeking attention Um, because I just don't believe in it. I feel like I'm not really one who believes in like religion per se. I I don't I don't want to say I'm atheist. I'm I'm borderline atheist, borderline agnostic. <laughs> but um if you want to label me because in the Bible it says the biggest lie that the devil will tell you is that he doesn't exist. Okay? That's that's what it says in the Bible. I'm paraphrasing. It might not say exactly that, but it's something along the lines of that. And that's the biggest lie the devil will try to tell you is that he does not exist. So if he would, if he was to truly do that, why would he possess somebody and make them do what they're doing? Why would, you know, he would want to pretend like he's a normal person. He wouldn't, he would do evil. Like a child molester would be more close to being a person possessed by the devil or a demon than a regular, like a serial killer to me would be a person who would be more along the lines 
of possessed by the devil. Ted Bundy would probably have been more possessed by a devil than the people who are like, <laughs> like people who are doing that. I feel like it's fucking bullshit and there's something wrong with you. Just somebody just needs to love you a little bit more because the reason why I would feel like somebody like Ted Bundy is because they seem so normal. They seem so normal that they're, they're just, you wouldn't suspect that there was a monster inside of them or that there was a demon inside of them to make them do something so atrocious and commit something so heinous as what these people have done. So that's why I don't believe in demonic possessions. So enough of the chit chat of that. Let's get on to the first possession. Okay. Now this, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong because it's French, but um, okay. So this one, we're going way back in our little time machine in this strange shock podcast time machine. We're going all the way to 1611 where this is one of, not the first, but it is one of, my PlayStation just went off. <laughs> it's the, it's the first, one of the first cases, um, not the very first, but it's uh, like kind of when this whole shit was going down because this occurred around the time of the witch trials, not Salem witch trials, but it was around when accusing everybody of being a witch was like, so in right now. So this is the Axen province possessions. Like I said, I probably said it wrong, but Axen, it, it's it's spelled A-I-X-E-N province. So Axen province possessions. And they were a series of alleged cases of demonic possession occurring among the Ursuline nuns, the Ursuline nuns of Axen province, which was south of France in 1611, like I said. And it was involved Father Lois Godfrey. And he was accused and convicted of causing the possession by a pact with the devil that he apparently made. And he was executed by strangulation and his body was burned. This case provided the legal precedent for the conviction and execution of Urban Grandier at Ludon more than 20 years later. So there was another case that I'm not going to be covering. I really wanted to, but there is a podcast out there that is way more famous than I way more better than I, and a lot more funnier than I. They actually make you laugh because of their jokes. I make you laugh because you laugh at how stupid and dumb I sound. <laughs> so go listen to them if you want to find out about that case because they recently covered it. Um, it was the case of the Ludon, which was another demonic possession case um, about nuns. And it was about, there's like a bunch of shit that happens in that fucking series. So go check out last podcast on the left who covered the Ludon possessions. Um, because it has a, everything you ever wanted in the case. It has fucking sex, priests, fucking nuns, all that shit, just blah, 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 you know, stuff like that and possessions. So, you know, so let's get on to the case. The early 17th century was host to the peak of accusation in France's witchcraft hunt. Prior to the 17th century, the testimony of a person perceived to be possessed was not considered reliable as anything they might say was likely from the father of lies. John 8, 44. It's another biblical quote. Madeleine de Maddox de la Plaude was a young French aristocrat, 17 years old at the time. Father Louis Graffiti, or Galfridi, yeah, Galfridi, was the parish priest. Parish priest. In 1607, de Mandux entered the Ursuline convent at Marcelal, Mar Marcelli, where she confessed to the superior that she had been intimate with Galfridi. So pretty much she was saying that Galfridi was just pounding that puss. 
and she was pretty young at the time. So, you know. The Mother Superior then sent her to Aix, the place Delmandus. Wait, Delman... Del... Why can I not say this damn word? I said it fine earlier. Delmandalks. Dolks. Whatever. Some distance from Galfridi. So they decided, well, you know, we can't have you fucking each other. You guys are supposed to be, a, you know, people of faith. You can't be doing that because you're supposed to be married to Christ and Jesus and all that good stuff. So we're going to send you away somewhere else. That's usually what they do to solve their problems. In the summer of 1609, Damon Ducks began to exhibit convulsions, shaking, and other symptoms of what was taken to be demonic possession. And the condition seemed to be contagious, almost like a virus, as other nuns also began to show symptoms. Maybe, okay, this is my theory, it wasn't demonic possession, but Gafridi was just packing some gifts along with his fucking, you know, he was probably had a little bit of herpes, and the convulsions was just their way of trying to handle that itch. All attempts at exorcism proved unsuccessful. When the priest X confronted Gafridi about the alleged affair, he denied it, as one would probably do. <sighs> Damon Dux and Luis Coupeau were referred to Sebastian Michels, Michalis, prior of the Dominican community of St. Maxim, and French Inquisitor. Michalis was assisted in his investigation by another Dominican, Father Donxiox. I'm probably saying that wrong again because it is French. I'm going to attempt it again. Father Don Siox. In the winter of 1610, they underwent further attempts at exorcism at St. Bame in Holy Cave, where, according to tradition, Mary Magdalene had once lived. You heard that right. It was in a cave that Mary Magdalene had once lived. The women appeared to be trying to outdo each other. Kaupu would speak in a deep bass voice, like the one you we now know is so synonymous with demonic possessions, the and like speaking Latin and shit, and like, fuck me, fuck me, like that type of shit. <laughs> Damon Dux would scream obscenities. All were convinced they were possessed. These are all nuns, by the way, if you're confused with the names. Kapau, I, I'm pretty sure I'm saying that wrong, but that's a nun, and then Damon Dux is also another nun, or a priest, I believe. All were convinced they were possessed. During one of these sessions, Galfridi was claimed to have seduced Damon Dux to have caused her to become possessed and taken her to Sabbats. Anti-clerical French Republican Jules Michelet gives credence to the claim that Galfridi seduced Damon Dux and perhaps other nuns. However, Michelet views Galfridi not as a parish priest of Marcelli, but the spiritual director of nuns at X, where due to their mont mo oh my god, due to their montanimous lives <laughs> and excessive imagination, most of them were infatuated with the priests. In other words, to kind of dumb it down for you, even though I don't know how to fucking properly pronounce montanimous or I don't know why I cannot say that word. Monotonous. It's just fucking mundane lives, okay? In other words, they, they, he felt that it wasn't because he they were possessed. He felt like they, you know, these when you become a nun, you're married to God. That is your husband. You don't have sex. You're not allowed to do that. It's a sin. You know, that you're giving, you're giving your body, that like, 
if you already had sex prior to you becoming a nun, you're like that chick from, I'm probably going to lose some of my listeners here because I do have a young audience, but there's a movie, okay, that happened way back in the early 90s. I think it was late 80s, early 90s. The first one might have been late 80s, early 90s. I know the second one was 92, maybe 92, 93, maybe even 91, but there is a spectacular movie about an African-American woman known, the actress is known as Whoopi Goldberg. She played in a little movie called Sister Act, where I learned this bit of info that I'm bestowing upon you. When you have sex prior to you becoming a nun, you decide you want to give your life to God and get married to God, you can't become a full-fledged nun because there was a character in that movie that was like that. She couldn't become a full-fledged nun because she already fucked prior to wanting to be a nun. So... You're welcome for that knowledge. Anyways, so the, the the father believed that it wasn't so much that they were probably possessed or that he bewitched them or he cast a spell upon them to become infatuated with um the 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 priest. I forgot his fucking name because there's so many names already, but he believed that it was just because they're so bored being a nun. You know, their life is mundane and just ordinary that they'll be smitten with any guy who comes around, you know, because they're just, they got all those juices flowing and they got nothing to fucking insert themselves with and shit, except for the cross, but that's a fucking major sin. So uh, most of them were infatuated with the priest. He suggests that Kepu was both jealous and a trifle mad. Marcelli supported Galfridi, not wishing to see the Inquisition at Avigan spread to their invariants. The bishop and chapter attributed the whole affair to the antipathy the monks had towards secular priests. So you'll learn if you go and check out the episode by last podcast on the left, which I can't recommend enough. I They don't even know I exist pretty much, but the fact that they're really awesome and really funny, they go on in the Ludon uh, possessions about how for some reason there's like monks and priests like like kind of fighting with each other in a way. You have to listen to the episode. It's really, it's really good and really funny. But uh, yeah, there. so go and check out. But this is kind of what that little sentence that I just read was kind of alluding to. The Franciansons, rivals, the Dominicans, also supported Gafridi. At one point, when a friar placed a holy relic on her, Kalpu said, Gafridi is no musician, magician at all, and therefore could not be arrested. I imagine that's how he would speak because he's French. Gafridi is no magician at all and therefore could not be arrested. That's my attempt at French accent. She subsequently recovered and stated that the Capuchins have failed to make the devil swear to tell the truth. Gafridi's appeal to the parliament was headed off by Michaelis, who filed his appeal first. Capu claimed to be possessed by a devil named Verine. When caught in inconsistent statements, Capu responded, The devil the devil is the father of lies. I believe Capu might be one of the nuns. <laughs> so, imagine a woman saying that. The interrogation of the parties attracted a number of spectators, and Capu soon outdrew Michaelis' preaching, according to Michaelette. Michaelis would have put an end to it had it only been Capu. Because of her general lack of credibility, Gafridi would not have been condemned on her testimony alone. So, if I confused you like I had confused myself when I was doing the research for this, Gafridi is the priest that is being accused of 
making a pact with the devil and Cap Capu. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, but Capu is one of the nuns that is giving her testimony of who she believes she's possessed by because of what Gafridi, the priest, supposedly made a pact with the devil and she was possessed by the pact. The pact. Gafridi would not have been condemned on her testimony alone, but the younger de Mandux was afraid of Capu and least she also be con- accused. So de Mandux, de Mandux, de Mandux, I, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong as well, is another nun who is coming forward in this trial, giving her testimony about who she's possessed by. She uh, confirmed whatever the older woman said. So Damon Damon Dokes is um, younger and afraid of Capu. In court, Father Graffiti strongly recanted the confession extracted from him by torture. In the eyes of court, the protest was useless. The signed confession and alleged pact were evidence weightly enough to sentence the priest to death by fire. Even after the sentence was given, inquisitors continued to demand the names of Graffiti's accomplices. On April 30th, 1661, was the day Father Graffiti's execution was to be had. With head and feet bare, a rope around his neck, Graffiti officially asked pardon of God and was handed over to the torturers. Still living after the torture of Strapado, and strapado, also known as corda, is a form of torture wherein the victim's hands are tied behind his or her back and suspended by rope attached to the wrists, typically resulting in dislocated shoulders. So that's what they were doing him to him. Weights may be added to the body to intensify the effect and increase pain. So that's what they were doing to him as they were as they were um, torturing him. Gafridi was escorted by archers while dragged through the streets of X for five hours before arriving at the place of execution. The priest was granted the mercy of strangulation before his body was burned to ashes. So they gave him a little bit of, you know, "Eh, we'll let you, we'll let you, you know, at least you don't have to feel the pain. So they strangled his body, therefore killing him, hopefully killing him. He could have been knocked unconscious for all we know. And then they burned him. Immediately following Graffiti's execution, Damon Dokes was apparently suddenly free of all possession. How convenient. Her fellow demonic sister, Louise Capu, was possessed until she died. Capu accused a blind girl who was executed in July 1611. Both of the sisters were banished from the covent, but Madeline remained under the watch of the Inquisition. She was charged with witchcraft in 1642 and again in 1652, and that woman just could not catch a break. During her second trial, Madeline was again found to have the devil's mark and was sentenced to imprisonment. At an advanced age, she was released to the custody of a relative and died in 1670 at the age of 77. The hysteria begun at X did not end with Gafridi's sentence and the banishment of the nuns. In 1613, two years later, the possession hysteria spread to Lili, where three nuns reported that Sister Mary de Sanz had bewitched them. Sister Mary's testimony was a near copy of Sister Madeline's reannouncement two years earlier. More than 20 years later, in 1634, the Ex in Province possession set precedent for the conviction and the execution of Urban Grandier. So... That was a brief little case of one of the very first hysteria of possessions. 
And we'll, this is, again, just my uh, speculation on the matter. I believe this shit happened because, again, being a nun is fucking boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, what do nuns really do? I, I don't know. I should become a fucking nun for a day just to see what they actually do. But I can't imagine what they do. Maybe they help out, like, you know, giving food to the poor. They hold little events here and there. But you know what? Out of all the friends that I've ever had who have been female, every time I I talk to a girl who's who's a female, every, well, that obviously, <laughs> of course they're female, but every time I talk to a woman who says that they can't necessarily be friends, they all, they can't be friends with other girls, and they all, it's hard for them. They may be like friends with one or two girls, but they're not a lot of friends with a bunch of girls, with a group of girls. And the reason for that, they all say the same thing, is that because whenever they are friends with girls, a bunch of girls, there's always fucking drama. And that seems to just be a, a testament to time. Because if you think about it, these nuns are just a bunch of group of girls. They're all fucking bored. They all want desired drama. If if the nuns were allowed to probably watch TV, like maybe um what what's a fucking good show if they were to watch stranger things or um how to get away with murder they'd probably be fine there would have been no fucking if that shit was available back in those times they probably would be fine like desperate housewives or the, of sex in the city they would probably be fine they would probably laugh and be like oh sister mary you're just like whatever the fucking character's name is in um what's that shit called and fucking Sex in the City. Oh, that's such a Samantha thing to say, Sister Mary Catherine. You silly goose. It, that's probably what it be like, probably be like. And they probably just made this shit up because they're fucking bored. Or um, one of the fucking hot nuns that for some reason she was like super hot and she just decided to become a nun because back in the time, back in those days, when a woman wasn't like if you couldn't like if a father couldn't like marry his daughter off to like some suitor who is well off or at least could have the potential of becoming um, a wealthy man. They would just send them to the church and have them marry, be married to God. That's what they would do back in those days. So welcome to strange talk podcast where you can get a history lesson on shit that you probably never knew that you would know about or that I knew about, but you learned that from the episode that last podcast on the left left did. So yeah, they would just marry them off to the church of God. Or sometimes they would just do that if they felt like, no, my daughter's not going to be married to no man. She, I want her to just be pure of heart and that's it because for some reason that's what some people used to do back then. So they would just marry them off. So sometimes, yes, there would be very attractive, beautiful women that would marry into and, and be married to God. So my guess is that they probably – one of them was fucking the father or the priest or some fucking young stud that would help around the fucking church and shit and – to get out of to not be fucking get kicked out of the church and the nunnery they would probably just say oh i'm possessed the fucking devil made my vagina all gooey and mushy and i i had to do something devil told me to do it Pro that's probably what happened that and that's what led to other people like claim of possession stuff like that but let's move on to the next case so this next case is a case that many of you probably knew, or you probably didn't even know you knew, but you probably seen it in some shape or form or heard about it. And it is one that inspired a little-known movie starring a little-known actress 
by the name of Linda Blair, and that movie is The Exorcist. Now, this is the case that inspired the movie. Well, technically inspired the author to write the book, The Real Exorcist, and then it inspired the movie, The Exorcist. And then they just changed a few things like Hollywood always does. And then, yeah, we got The Exorcist, which is a good movie, but it's not a movie that stands the test of time. Because I'll be honest, I used to love The Exorcist. But when I went to rewatch it again, it is really, really fucking slow. It does not age well at all. So, having said that, let's get into The Exorcism of Roland Doe. In the late 1940s in the United States, priests of the Roman Catholic Church performed a series of exorcisms on an anonymous boy documented under the pseudonym Roland Doe or Robbie Mannheim. Robbie Mannheim! That are, I don't know why, for some reason that name sounds like a name that you'd hear like on SNL. <laughs> like Robbie Mannheim! Anyways, the 14-year-old boy, born circa 1935, was the alleged victim of demonic possession, and the events were recorded by the attending priest Raymond J. Bishop. Subsequent supernatural claims surrounding events were used as elements in the 1971 novel The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty and the 1973 film adaptation. So, like I said, that's where it came. So, here we go. In the mid-1949, several newspaper articles printed anonymous reports of an alleged possession and exorcism. The source for these reports is thought to be the family's former pastor, Luther Miles Schultz. According to one account, a total of 48 people witnessed this exorcism. Nine of them were Jesuits. According to author Thomas B. Allen, Jesuits priest father Walter H. Halloran was one of the last surviving eyewitnesses of the events and participated in the exorcism himself. Allen wrote that a diary kept by attending priest father Raymond J. Bishop detailed the exorcism performed on the pseudonymously identified Roland Doe, a.k.a. Robbie. Speaking in 2013, Allen emphasized that the definitive proof that the boy known only as Robbie was possessed by a malevolent spirit and is unattainable. Maybe he instead suffered from mental illness or sexual abuse or simply fabricated the entire experience. According to Allen, Halloran also expressed his skepticism about potential paranormal events before his death. So basically, um, they were just saying that they don't believe that he was truly possessed by a demon. They felt that he was just suffering severely from mental illness. That's what they truly believe. When asked in an interview to make a statement on whether the boy had been possessed, Halloran responded saying, No, I can't go on record. I never made an absolute statement about the things because I didn't feel I was qualified to. So that's what he said. Roland was born into a German Lutheran family during the 1940s. The family lived in Cottage City, Maryland. According to Alan, Roland was an only child and depended upon adults in his household for playmates, primarily his aunt Harriet. His aunt, who was a spiritualist, introduced Roland to the Ouija board, where he expressed interest in it. And that is where a lot of the people believed is where the demon possession is basically how it came. That's how he became possessed, was because he contacted a spirit. And there's always superstitious beliefs that the Ouija board is a gateway to hell or to let demons or spirits possess one person who's using it. I don't. I think that's 
just a bunch of crock of shit. <laughs> so I'm sorry if you believe in the Ouija board. I don't. I've messed with the Ouija board before. I've never once experienced anything. It, it what, what you're doing when you're placing your hands on... What's that fucking thing called? The little thing that looks like a guitar pick. I forgot what it's fucking called. But when you're messing with that shit, it's, you, there's a phenomenon that everybody experiences when more than one person's hand is using it. And it, I forgot what it's called, but it's basically like you're subconsciously pushing it in a way where you you're pushing it yourself but you don't realize you are you think the other person other person the other person is pushing it but you're actually pushing it oh my god you're actually push pushing it yourself (laughs) okay so anyways according to thomas b allen after aunt harriet's death sorry i digressing i know but going back to the ouija board thing also to another reason why i don't believe that the ouija board was something that can contact demons or spirits is because of the fact it was made by a toy company it's made by fucking mattel either mattel or it's owned by another toy company if if there was a device out there that would allow people to fucking talk to the dead or be possessed by demons we wouldn't have it readily available but then again we have food that causes you to get diabetes and stuff like that so i mean that could be an argument against me that i wouldn't be able to argue back with but I just don't believe that a toy company would have something like that. So anyways, back to the exorcisms. According to Thomas B. Allen, after Aunt Harriet's death, the family experienced strange noises, furniture moving on its own accord, and everyday ordinary objects such as vases flying or levitating when the boy, Roland, was nearby. The family turned to their Lutheran pastor, Luther Miles Schultz, for help. Long interested in parapsychology, Solch arranged for the boy to spend a night in his home in order to observe him. Ha, that's a little suspect. Yes, I am a pastor. Could the boy Roland maybe possibly stay the night with me so I may observe his naked body? Did I say naked body? I mean to observe any of the paranormal things that you guys claim about him. (laughs) When parapsychologist J.B. Ryan learned that Schultz claimed he witnessed household objects and furniture seemingly moving by themselves, Ryan wondered if Schultz unconsciously exaggerated some of the facts. Schultz advised the boy's parents to see a Catholic priest. Oh, that's right. He's different. He's not Catholic. He's Lutheran. (laughs) Still, doesn't mean he can't fucking diddle a kid just because he's a different religion. Anyways, According to the traditional story, the boy then underwent a number of exorcisms. Edward Hughes, a Roman Catholic priest, conducted an exorcism on Roland at Georgetown University Hospital, a Jesuit institution. Now, I didn't know what a Jesuit was, but apparently the Society of Jesus is a scholarly religious congregation of the Catholic Church for men founded by Inuits of Loyola? It's almost like Toyota, but it's spelled with an L. Loyola, and approved by Pope Paul III. The members are called Jesuits. The society is engaged in evangelization and a polistic ministry in 112 and 112 nations. So yeah, that's what a Jesuit was. I never knew what it was prior to doing the research for this. During the exorcism... The boy allegedly slipped one of his hands in the pants of the priest. I'm just kidding. That didn't actually happen. During the exorcism, the boy allegedly slipped one of his hands out of the restraints and broke a bedspring from under the mattress and used it as an impromptu weapon 
slashing the priest's arm and resulting in the exorcism ritual being halted. The family traveled to St. Louis, where Roland's cousin contacted one of his professors at St. Louis University. A bishop who in turn spoke to William S. Bowdern. I want to say it's Bowdern or Bowdern, an associate of College Church. Together, both priests visited Roland in his relative's home, where they allegedly observed a shaking bed, flying objects, and the boy speaking in a guttural voice and exhibiting an aversion to anything sacred. Bowdern was granted permission from the archbishop to perform another exorcism on Roland. The exorcism took place at the Alaxian Brothers Hospital in South St. Louis, Missouri, which was later, um, which I'm sorry, which was later demolished. They would later demolish that building. Before the next ex- exorcism ritual began, another priest, Walter Holleran, was called to the psychiatric wing of the hospital, where he was asked to assist Bowdern. William Van Rowe, a third Jesuit priest, was also there to assist with the exorcism. Halloran stated that during this scene, words such as evil and hell, along with other various marks, appeared on Roland's body. Allegedly, during the litany of the saints portion of the exorcism ritual, the boy's mattress began to shake. Moreover, Roland broke Halloran's nose during the process Halloran told a reporter that after the rite was over, the anonymous subject of the exorcism went on to lead a rather ordinary life. So, he did not die. And just like the movie, Robbie was able to continue his life and grow up, which is why he is known as Roland Doe, because he didn't want to give his real name out, so he probably wouldn't have to, you know, live with that for the rest of his life. But he probably does. So who knows if it's true? If we were, if somehow Roland Doe, you were ever to hear this, or you're probably dead by now. Hopefully you're not. But if you were ever somehow to listen to this, or maybe a granddaughter, or a son, daughter, what cousin, fucking uncle's nephew, I don't care. Reach out to me. I would love to talk to you about your experience and everything. But I probably not going to happen. But if it were to, that'd be awesome. In his 1993 book, Possessed, the true story of an exorcism, author Thomas B. Allen offered the consensus of today's expert that Robbie was just a de- deeply disturbed boy and nothing snoop- there was nothing supernatural about him. Author Mark Opensnick, I guess that's, his, that's how you say his last name, questioned many of the supernatural claims associated with the story, proposing that Roland Doe was simply a spoiled disturbed bully who threw deliberate tantrums to get attention or to get out of school. Open Snick reports that Halloran, who was present at the exorcism, never heard the boy's voice change, and he thought the boy merely mimicked Latin words he heard clergymen say, rather than gaining a sudden ability to speak Latin. Open Snick reported that when marks were found on the boy's body, Halloran failed to check the boy's fingernails to see if he had made the marks himself. Open Snake also questioned the story of Hugh's attempt to exorcise the boy and his subsequent injury, saying he could find no evidence that such an episode had actually even happened. During his investigation, Open Snake discovered the exorcism did not take place at 3210 Bunker Hill Road in Mount Rainier, Maryland, and the boy never lived in Mount Rainer. The boy's home was in Cottage City, Maryland. Much of the commonly accepted information about this story is based on hearsay. It is not documented, 
and was never fact-checked. There is no evidence Father E. Albert Hughes visited the boy's home, had him admitted to Georgetown Hospital, requested that the boy be restrained at the hospital, attempted an exorcism of the boy at Georgetown Hospital, or was injured by the boy during said exorcism or any time. There is a sample there's an ample evidence refuting claims that Father Hughes suffered an emotional breakdown and disappeared from the Cottage City community. According to OpenSNCC, individuals connected to the incident were influenced by their own specializations. To psychiatrists, Rob Doe suffered from mental illness. To priests, this was a case of demonic possession. So there was a bit of debate after the exorcism took place. The clergyman or the Jesuit priest that conducted the exorcism believed that it was concrete evidence of a demonic possession. But these authors, um, one was a psychologist named Opensnick, well, his first name is Mark. He was a man that wrote a book just trying to refute all of this. He is a man of science, and he is not going to stand for this fucking shit. He's like, fuck these Jesuit priests. I'm not going to sit here and say that, hey, this is a demonic possession, because it's not real. I am a man of science, and I will not stand here and let this besmirch me and my school, my schooling. To the priests, this was a case of demonic possession, like I said. To the writers and film video producers, this was a great story to exploit for profit, which they did because of the movie The Exorcism came out. Those involved saw what they were trained to see. Each purported to look at the facts, but just the opposite was true. In actuality, they manipulated the facts and emphasized information that fit their own agendas. OpenSnick wrote that after he located and spoke with neighbors and childhood friends of Roland Doe, most of whom he only re- referenced by initials, he included. He concluded that the boy had been a very clever trickster who had pulled pranks to frighten his mother and to fool children in the neighborhood. Skeptic by a skeptic by the name of Joe Nickel wrote that there was simply no credible evidence to suggest the boy was possessed by demons or evil spirits, and maintains that the symptoms of possession can be childishly simple to fake. Nickel dismissed suggestions that supernatural forces made scratches or markings or caused words to appear on the teenager's body in unreachable places, saying a determined youth probably even without a wall mirror could easily have managed such a feat if it actually occurred. Although the scratch messages proliferated, they never again appeared on a difficult-to-reach portion of the boy's anatomy. On one occasion, the boy was reportedly seen scratching the words hell and Christ on his chest, by using his own fingernails, according to Nickel. Nothing that was reliably reported in the case was beyond the abilities of a teenager to produce. The tantrums, trances, moved furniture, hurled objects, automatic writing, superficial scratches, and other phenomenon were just the kinds of things someone of Roland's age could accomplish, just as others have done before and since. Indeed, the elements of poltergeist phenomenon, spirit communication, and demonic possession— taken both separately and especially together as one progressed to the other, suggests nothing so much as role-playing involving trickery. Nickel also dismissed stories of the boy's prodigious strength, saying he showed nothing more than what could be summoned by an agitated teenager, and criticized popular accounts of the exorcism for what he termed a stereotypical storybook portrayal of the devil. So that is going to be for that's going to be it for the case of Roland Doe. But I would be, you know what? Please, please, you, if you follow me 
on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. Reach out to me and tell me if you believe strongly in demonic possessions. If you really truly believe that people can be possessed by the devil, I want to know what you think. I'm not I'm not going to argue with you and tell you you're fucking wrong or you're stupid or you should probably stop following me and kill yourself. No, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I just true I, I just want to talk to people who and just you tell me your reasons why you believe strongly that you there that people can be in, in fact possessed by the devil or by a demon. I just want to know. So let, 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 let me know what you think. Reach out to me and tell me. You can, if you follow me on, on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, send me a DM. Or if you comment on one of my posts, I don't care. Or if you want to send me an email, go ahead, do that. I, I want to know what my listeners think. Do you believe in possessions? Do you not believe in possessions? Tell me your reasons. Lend me your ears, people. I want to know. So having said that, let's move on to another case of demonic possession. So this case is one that happened kind of a while ago, but it's one of the fairly recent cases that happened, and it happened back in November 24th, 1981. So like I said, not super like fresh, but still kind of rap. The tr- this one is the trial of Arne Cheyenne Johnson, also known as the Devil Made Me Do It case. It is the first known court case in the United States in which the defense sought to prove innocence based upon the defendant's claim of demonic possession and a denial of personal responsibility for their crime. On November 24th, 1981, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Arne Cheyenne Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for the killing of his landlord named Alan Bono. So, yeah, that's what happened. And according to according to testimony by the Galtzel, the Galetz, oh, sorry, Galtzel family? Yeah, Galtzel family. 11-year-old David Galtzel had allegedly played host to the demon that forced Johnson to kill Bono. After witnessing a number of increasingly ominous occurrences involving David, the family, exhausted and terrified, decided to enlist the aid of self-described demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren, noted for their investigation into the famed Admiral haunting. In a last-ditch effort to cure David, the Gautzell family, along with the Warrens, then proceeded to have David exercised by a number of Catholic priests. The process continued for several days, concluding when, according to those present at the time, a demon fled the child's body and took up residency within Johnson. Okay. Several months later, Johnson killed his landlord during a heated conversation. His defense lawyer argued in court that he was possessed, man. There's no way he would do. Why would he do that? He was possessed by the devil, man. But the judge ruled that such a defense could never be proven and was therefore infeasible in a court of law. Johnson was subsequently convicted, though he only served, get this, he only served five years of a 10 to 20 year sentence. The trial attracted media attention from around the world and has obtained a level of notoriety due to numerous depictions of the events in literature and television. So they were actually, uh, Arne Johnson was actually, um, I, I don't know why I say Arne, it's Arnie. <laughs> Arne Johnson. Because I want to think it's French for some reason. Arnie Johnson and Debbie 
Glatzel provided first-hand accounts for their version of events depicted in the show A Haunting on Discovery Channel, and it was on the episode where demons dwell. During the interview, they claimed to be eyewitness to demonic possession, and both were adamant in their support of the Warren's recollection of events. They asserted that paranormal activity began after they went to clean up a rental property they had just acquired. David recollected that an old man appeared, pushing and terrifying him. The couple initially thought David was using the old man as an excuse to avoid cleaning. But David informed them that the old man had vowed to harm the Glatzels if they moved into the rental home. David's visions of the old man included the man appearing as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Although the family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, no one but David ever witnessed this old man. After David experienced night terrors, exhibited strange behavior, and obtained unexplained scratches and bruises, the family called upon the services of a Catholic priest who attempted to bless the house. This house is cleansed. The terrified family concluded that the house was evil and would no longer continue to rent it. David's visions worsened, occurring in the daytime as well. Twelve days after the original incident, the family summoned the self-proclaimed demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren to assist. Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materialize next to David and an apparent indication of a malevolent presence. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and that red marks had appeared on his neck afterwards. David had started to growl, hiss, and speak in otherworldly voices and recite passages from the Bible or Paradise Lost. And if you don't know what Paradise Lost is, Paradise Lost is an epic poem in blank verse by the 17th century English poet John Milton. It was published between 1608 and 1674. The first version, published back in 1667, so I'm sorry, that's when he died, I'm sorry, consisted of 10 books with over 10,000 lines of verse. A second edition followed in 1970, I mean, I'm sorry, in 1674, arranged into 12 books with minor revisions. The Lost, the Glatzels recounted how each night a family member would remain awake with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. After receiving a prognosis of multiple possessions from the Warrens, David was subjected to three lesser exorcisms. Lorraine asserts that David levitated, ceased breathing for a time, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition. And for you that don't know what precognition is, precognition, also called prescience or future vision or future sight, is a claim psychic ability to see events in the future. So technically that means he could have seen the ending to the to the movie Marvel's Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Specific, speci- specifically in relation to the murder Johnson would later commit. So he got visions, almost like a final destination moment of how Arnie Johnson was going to kill the landlord. In October of 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. According to eyewitness testimony, Arnie Johnson coerced one of the demons purportedly within David to possess him while participating in David's exorcism. Come into me! 
Into me, you demon! <laughs> it is here that a haunting veers away from the circumstances of Johnson's possession as described by those involved. According to the show, a few days after Johnson egged the demon on during the exorcism, he was attacked rather viciously by the demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced it into a tree. Fortunately, Johnson was unharmed. <clears throat> After this incident, Johnson returned to the rental property to examine an old well that was supposedly housed that supposedly housed the demon, sort of like it. And oh well, technically Pennywise. <laughs> the Warrens claimed to have warned him not to do this, although the warning was not mentioned in the episode and the show A Haunting. As David's condition continued to worsen, Debbie and Debbie and Johnson decided it was time to move out of her mother's home. Debbie was hired by Alan Bono, a new resident in Brookfield, as a dog groomer. Debbie and Johnson began renting an apartment close to their place of employment. After moving in, Johnson started to exhibit odd behavior and was strikingly similar to David's, causing Debbie to fear that he had become possessed by the demon as well. According to Debbie, Johnson would fall into a trance-like state wherein he would growl and hallucinate but later, but later have no memory of the hallucination or, you know, state. Anyways, on February 16, 1981, Johnson called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Service and joined Debbie at the kennel where she worked. Along with his sister, Wanda, and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin, Mary, Bono, the couple's landlord, and Debbie's employer at the kennel, bought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. Debbie then took the girls to get pizza, but insisted they return quickly, anticipating trouble. When they returned, Bono, intoxicated at this point, just super fucking lit, became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging, except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let go. Johnson headed back to the apartment and ordered Bono to release Mary. Wanda recounted the following events to police. This is what she said. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried in vain to pull Johnson away. However, Johnson, growling like an animal, then drew a 5-inch, 130-millimeter pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. Bono died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Johnson was discovered two miles from the site of the murder and was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of $125,000. This was the first murder in history of Brookfield, Connecticut. Damn! <laughs> the first murder? They went all that many years without a single murder. Well, technically, it probably wasn't the first murder, but anyways. The day after the murder, Lorraine Warren informed the Brookfield police that Johnson was possessed when the crime was committed. A media blitz soon surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, 
whose agents promised that lectures, a book, and even a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. Damn, already the fucking Warrens, man. <laughs> They're like, oh, we already got we already got a movie deal in the works. Sylvester Stallone's gonna be playing Arnie. It's it's gonna be magical. <laughs> Anyways, if you have spirits in your home, we'll be happy to help you out. <laughs> Martin Manella, Johnson's lawyer, received calls from all over the world about what was being called the Demon Murder Trial. Manella traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though neither went to trial. He planned to fly in exorcism specialists from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priests who oversaw David Gladsell's exorcism if they did not cooperate with the defense. Damn. Lawyers, these scummy bastards. The trial took place... Connecticut Superior Court in Danbury, beginning on October 28 of 1981. Manella attempted to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession, but the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, promptly rejected this defense. Callahan argued that no, no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to lack of evidence, and that would be irrelative and unscientific to allow related testimony. The defense chose to imply that Johnson acted in self-defense, and because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the murder. The jury deliberated, deliberated <laughs> for 15 hours over three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981 of first-degree manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, though he only served five years. Okay, he only served five years. So, the incident led to the creation of a made-for-TV movie called The Demon Murder Case on NBC and a major motion picture. The production of which was stalled due to internal conflicts. In 1983, Gerald Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. So if you want to read it, you know what book to, to go check out. And it's called The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine Warren has stated that profits from the book were shared with the family. Sources confirm that $2,000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. Upon the book's republication in 2006 by iUniverse, David Glatzell and his brother Carl Glatzell Jr. sued the authors and book publishers for violating their right to privacy, libel, and intentional affliction of emotional distress. Distress. <laughs> I just kind of sounded like Sean Connery. Distress. Carl also claimed that the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness, and that the book presented him as a villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He also asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and would help get Johnson out of jail. See... If you're a fan of Ed and Lorraine Warren, I'm really sorry because I'm probably going to offend you. I honestly just think that Ed and Lorraine were just fucking scam artists. And they they were opportunists, and that's why they are famous. <laughs> I honestly believe that. According to Carl Galetz, Glatzel, Jesus fucking Christ, that name is stupid the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities he is currently writing a book titled alone through the valley about his version of the events surrounding his brother 
Arnie Johnson. Lorraine Warren defends her work with the family. She says that the six priests who were involved in the incident agreed at the time, the family, and they, and that they signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. Gladzell's father, Carl Gladzell Sr., denies telling the author that his son was possessed. Johnson and Debbie are now married, wholeheartedly support the Warren's account of demonic possession, and have stated that the Gladzells in question are suing simply for monetary purposes. So, that kind of sucks. So, even after that little whole debacle, people just can't get along, man. So, that's it for that case of the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, or also known as the Devil Made Me Do It case. So, we're going to be moving on to our next and final case. So, this next and final case of demonic possession is of Annalise Michael. Now, most of you probably already have heard of this case in some shape or form as well, or you probably heard about it on uh, another podcast you're probably listening to. But it's the most documented case of demonic possession because not video evidence, but audio. There's a lot of audio. They The priests recorded when they were actually performing the exorcism. So, this is the case that you guys were wanting to listen to because I am going to be providing you with the actual audio recording of when they possess her. So you could just get a taste of what supposed demonic possession is. Or if you're a person like me, just to hear what a deeply disturbed, mentally ill person sounds like. So Anna Elizabeth Annalise Michael was a German woman who underwent Catholic exorcism rites during the year before her death. She was diagnosed with epileptic psychosis, or temporal lobe epilepsy, and had a history of psychiatric treatment, which was overall not effective. When Michael was 16, she experienced a seizure and was diagnosed with psychosis caused by temporal lobe epilepsy. Shortly thereafter, she was diagnosed with depression and treated at a psychiatric hospital. By the time she was 20, she had become intolerant of various religious objects and began to hear voices. Her condition worsened despite medication, and she became suicidal, also displaying other symptoms, for which she took medication as well. After taking psychiatric medications for five years and failed to improve her symptoms, Michelle or Mikkel, and her family became convinced she was possessed by a demon. As a result, her family appealed to the Catholic Church for an exorcism. While rejected at first, after much hesitation, two priests got permission from the local bishop in 1975. And Annalise Michael stopped eating food and died due to malnourishment and dehydration. Michael's parents and two Roman Catholic priests were found guilty of negligent homicide and were sentenced to six months in jail reduced to three years of probation, as well as a fine. And there was a film in 2005 that kind of is based on on this incident, and that is The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It stars that chick that thinks she's really fat in White Chicks, and then you never see her again except for in the show Dexter. She's in that show, I think. Is she in Dexter or is she in California? Vacation? Anyways, born as Anna Elizabeth Michael on 21st September of 1952 in Lebigfing, Bavaria, West Germany, 
to a Roman Catholic family. I don't know why I like Bavaria. It's because it reminds me of um, Anger Management when Woody Harrelson makes a cameo and he's like, Oh, hello. I am Galaxia. I am a little German woman from a little town of Bavaria called Dickensy Dickens. <laughs> I fucking love that, dude. He's fucking funny in that scene. Um, she was born to a Roman Catholic family, and Michael was brought up along with three sisters by her parents, Josef and Anna. She was religious and went to Mass at least twice a week. When she was 16, she suffered a severe compulsion and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. In 1973, Michael graduated. I want to say Mikkel is how you say her name. Mikkel graduated and joined the University of Würzburg. Her classmates later described her as withdrawn and very religious. In June of 1970, Mikkel suffered a third seizure at the psychiatric hospital where she had been staying. She was prescribed anti-convulsion drugs for the first time, including dilatin, which did not alleviate the problem at all. She began describing seeing devil faces at various times of the day. That same month, she was prescribed another drug, Elolept, Aolept, I think that's how you say it, which is similar to clipromazine and is used in the treatment of various psychosis, including schizophrenia disturbed behavior, and delusions. By 1773, she suffered from depression and began hallucinating while praying and complained about hearing voices telling her that she was damned and would, and would rot in hell. Mikhail's treatment... I'm, instead of saying Mikhail's, I'm going to just say Annalise because that's her first name. Annalise's treatment in a psychiatric hospital did not improve her health and her depression worsened. Long-term treatment did not help either, and she grew increasingly frustrated with the medical intervention, taking pharmaceutical drugs for five years. Michael <laughs> Annalise became intolerant of Christian sacred places and objects, such as the crucifix. Annalise went to San Demonio with a family friend who regularly organized Christian pilgrimages. Her escort concluded that she was suffering from demonic possessions because she was unable to walk past a crucifix and refused to drink water of a Christian holy spring. Annalise told me, and Frau Hein confirmed this, that she was unable to enter the shrine. She approached it with the greatest hesitation, then said that the soul burned like fire and she simply could not stand it. She then walked around the shrine in a wide arc and tried to approach it from the back. She looked at the people who were kneeling in the area surrounding the little garden, and it seemed to her that while praying, they were gnashing their teeth. She got as far as the edge of the little garden, then she had to turn back. Coming from the front again, she had to avert her glance from the picture of Christ in the chapel of the house, and she made it several times to the garden but could not get past it. She also noted that she could no longer look at medals or pictures of saints. They sparked so immensely that she could not stand it. That was what um, her friend said um, about Annalise. Both she and her family, as well as her community, became convinced and consulted several priests, asking for an exorcism. The priests declined, recommended the continuation of medical treatment, and informed the family that exorcism required the bishop's permission. In the Catholic Church, 
Official approval for the exorcism is given when the person strictly meets the set criteria. Then they are considered to be suffering from possession and under demonic control. Intense dislike for religious objects and supernatural powers are some of the first indications. Annalise worsened physically and displayed aggression, self-injury, and drank her own piss and ate insects. In November of 1973, Annalise started her treatment with Tetratol. I think that's how you say it. Um, and it was another um, antipsychotic drug, I believe. Oh, I'm sorry. It was an anti-seizure drug and a mood stabilizer. She was prescribed antipsychotic drugs during the course of the religious rites and took them frequently until the time before her death. So, spoiler warning, she died. <laughs> and it sucks. Uh, the priest, Ernest Alt, whom they met on seeing her, declared that she didn't look like an epileptic. Okay, so I'm going to say that again. Okay, They met with this priest named Ernest Alt. And he decided that after seeing her, he declared that she didn't look like an epileptic and that he did not see her having seizures. So this is a guy that's using religion as a basis for a medical diagnosis. I mean, yeah, everybody's flawed. Doctors make mistakes. They're not fucking perfect. But this is a man that has his religion and is using that as a basis to diagnose this woman where a doctor who's going to school to learn about medicine but, I mean, I'm not I'm just trying to put something in perspective for you all. Alt believed she was suffering from demonic possession and urged the local bishop to allow an exorcism. In a letter to Alt in 1975, Annalise wrote, I am not seen. Everything about me is vanity. What should I do? I have to improve. You pray for me. And also once told him, I want to suffer for other people. But this is so cool. In September of the same year, Bishop Josef Stengel granted the priest Arnold Rentz permission to exercise according to the Ritual Romania of 1614, but ordered total secrecy. Rentz performed the first session on the 24th of September. Annalise began taking increasing, talking increasingly about dying to atone for the wayward youth of the day and the epithet the apostate of priests of the modern church, and she refused to eat towards the very end. At this point, her parents stopped consulting doctors on her request and relied solely on the exorcism rites. A total of, 60, of 67 exorcism sessions, one or two each week, lasting up to four hours, were performed about over were performed over about 10 months from 1975 to 1976. On July 1st, 1976, Annalise died in her home. The autopsy report stated that the cause was malnutrition and dehydration due to, be, due to being in a semi-starvation state for almost a year while the rites of exorcism were performed. She weighed 30 kilograms or 68 pounds. That's how much she weighed. She only weighed 68 pounds. My fucking dog weighs more than that. Suffering broken knees due to continuous nuflexions or nuflexion is the act of bending at least one knee to the ground. From early times, it has been a gesture of deep respect for superior. Today, the gesture is, a com is common in the Christian religious practices of the Anglican Church, Lutheran Church, and Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so that's 
that's what that is. So I guess that's what she was suffering broken knees from doing that. Jesus Christ. She was unable to move without assistance and was reported to have contracted pneumonia. After an investigation, the state prosecutor maintained that Annalise's death could have been prevented even one week before she had died. In 1976, the state charged Annalise's parents and priest Ernest Alt and Arnold Rains with ne negligent homicide. <clears throat> During the case, Annalise's body was exhumed and tapes were played to the court of the exorcism over the 11 months which led to her death. The parents were defended by Enric Schmidt Lechner. Their lawyers were sponsored by the church. The state recommended that no involved parties be jailed. Instead, the recommended sentence for the priest was a fine. While the prosecution concluded that the parents should be exempt from punishment as they had suffered enough, which is a which is a citrian in German penal law. The trial started on March 30, 1978, in the district court and drew intense interest. Before the court, doctors testified that Annalise was not possessed, stating that this was a psychological effect because of her strict religious upbringing and her epilepsy. But the doctor, Richard Roth, who was asked for medical help by Alt, allegedly told her during the exorcism that there is no injection against the devil, Annalise. Schmidt Lichna said that the exorcism was legal and that the German constitution protected citizens in the unrestricted, unrestricted exercise of their religious beliefs. The defense played tapes recorded at the exorcism sessions, sometimes featuring what was claimed to be demons arguing to assert their claim that Annalise was possessed. Both priests said the demons identified themselves as Lucifer, Cain, Judas, Isocrat, Hitler, and Nero, among others. So Hitler's the demon in hell. <laughs> You'd think he would be suffering, but no, nope, he's right up there. He's supposedly a fucking demon. Nero, among others. I don't even know who these other demons are. Let's find out who they are. Nero was the last Roman em emperor of the Julio Clandon dynasty. He was adopted by his great uncle Claudius and became Claudius' heir and successor. Like Claudius, Nero became emperor with the consent of Paterian guard, Nero's mother, Agrippina <laughs> the Younger. Okay, so yeah, that's who that, I guess that was a real person back in the time. They further said that she was finally freed because of the exorcism just before her death. The bishop said that he was not aware of her alarming health condition when he approved of the exorcism and did not testify. The accused were found guilty of manslaughter, resulting from negligence, and were sentenced to six months in jail, which was later suspended, and three years of probation. It was a far lighter sentence than anticipated, but it was more than requested by the prosecution, who had asked that the priest only be fined and that the parents be found guilty but not punished. The, tr the church, approving such an old-fashioned exorcism rite, drew public and media attention. According to John M. Duffy, the case was a misidentification of mental illness. So, before I continue on with the case, we're almost done with it, but before I continue... Ow, I just hit my hand. Before I continue on with the case, I'm going to be playing the tapes of the exorcism. So, if you are one that truly, truly, strongly believes in demonic possession and you're very superstitious, I advise you not to listen to this because I don't want to 
scare you. Because without context or anything, it's actually kind of really scary. And it's not scary because I think she's possessed by the demon. It's scary because the fact is that this woman, Annalise, was suffering and was deeply disturbed mentally. And they let it happen. That's why it's scary for me. And it's a very scary thing to listen to. So I'm going to be playing the tapes that they played during the trial to back up their claim that she was actually possessed by the demon. So I'm going to be playing that for you right now. So I know I said I was going to be playing the audio tapes right now, but I just wanted to give you a warning too that, um, if like I, again, if you're if you believe in this and you find it scary, don't listen to it. Skip over. I'm not going to be playing the full amount tapes because one. It's in German, so you're not going to understand specifically what they're saying. So I don't want it to go on too long. I'm probably going to play maybe like 10 minutes of it or five minutes of it. I'm not going to play the full length of it. I haven't decided how long I'm going to play the audio because of the fact that it's in German, so you're not going to understand what they're saying. And I don't want it to go on too long. But I'm just going to be playing a bit of it. So just so you can get a taste of what went on in because you're not seeing it, so you're only going to get to, like, your imagination's going to play, just going to run along with it. You're probably saying, like, fuck, hurry up, I just want to get to it. <laughs> right, so here is the exorcism tape of Annalise Mikkel. Um, Again, it's in German, so you're probably not going to understand what they're saying. If you speak German, let me know what they're saying. All right, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Ja, die Drecksau, die Bäden, ja, immer. Das kann ich Ihnen auch jetzt 
So that was a little bit of audio. So like I said, if you want to listen to the whole thing, the whole thing is about an hour and like 20 minutes, I think, or an hour and like 10 minutes. But it there's an hour of just all this going on and on and on. Uh, so just go ahead and search on YouTube Annalise Mikkel for the audio tapes. And I'm sure you'll find them. It, it, it's readily available everywhere on YouTube. Um, but yeah, that's just what keeps going on it, it gets a little worse and then it, it gets fine and then it just stops altogether and you can barely hear what they're saying so again it's very damp in sound again this is audio equipment that they're using in the 70s so yeah so the trial started on march 30th 1978 in the district court and drew intense interest before the court doctors testified that mikhail was not possessed stating that this was a psychological effect because of her strict religious upbringing and her epilepsy. But the doctor, Richard Roth, who was asked for medical help by all, allegedly told her during the exorcism, I've already read this. <laughs> At, <laughs> after the trial, the parents asked the authorities for permission to exhume the remains of their daughter. The official reason presented by the parents to authorities was that Mikhail had been buried in undue hurry in a cheap coffin almost two years after the burial. On the 25th of February 1978, her remains were replaced in a new oak coffin lined with tin. The official reports state that the body bore the signs of consistent deterioration. The accused exorcists were discouraged from seeing the remains of Mikhail. Arnold Renz later stated that he had been prevented from entering the mortuary. The church changed its position, stating she was mentally ill and not possessed. Her grave became and remains a pilgrimage site to this very day. Ulrich Neinman, a Jesuit priest, 
doctor and psychiatrist whom priests call an exorcism case told the Washington Post in 2005. As a doctor, I say there is no such thing as possession. In my view, these patients are extremely mentally ill. I pray with them, but that alone doesn't help. You have to deal with them as a psychiatrist. But at the same time, when the patient comes from Eastern Europe and believes that he's been impaired by evil, it would be a mistake to ignore his belief system. Neiman further said that he does not think he is an exorcist and does not perform the Roman ritual of 1614. Academic Heike Schwartz says that Annalise's case showed demonic possession as a variation of multiple personality disorder, also known now as dissociative identity disorder. The number of officially sanctioned exorcisms decreased in Germany due to this case. In spite of Pope Benedict's support for wider use of it compared to Pope John Paul II, who in 1999 made the rules stricter involving only rare cases. On the 6th of June of 2013, a fire broke out in the house where Annalise Mikkel lived, and although the local police said it was a case of arson, some locals believed it is from the cause of the exorcism. And that ends today's episode of Strange Talk Podcast, Demonic Possessions. <laughs> so again, thank you guys for joining me on today's episode. A Strange Talk Podcast, Demonic Possessions. Let me know what you think. Do you truly believe people can be possessed by demons or is it sim simply just a mental illness? I, like I said prior to getting into the episode, I don't believe in demonic possession. I don't believe in demons. I don't believe in any of that stuff. I think it's just a disturbed individual or a person seeking attention because, again, our minds will always harken back to what we are familiar. We are creatures of habit. We are creatures of habit. And she was brought up very religious. So, of course, her mind's going to go to that. Her mind's going to go to... I'm sure they've talked about exorcisms before, maybe. They've talked about the possession of, of, of demons, demons possessing people and stuff like that. So, I'm pretty sure that's maybe what she thought she was going through. And her family was deeply religious themselves so they probably attributed her behavior to being possessed by a demon i don't think so i truly believe that she was just suffering from some mental illness and it sucks because who knows how many of these cases prior to the halting and like the more stricter criteria it takes for the church to actually sanction an exorcism who knows how many of these cases could have been attributed to simply just that of mental illness so you know it, it just sucks because she could have probably still led her life you know until she actually died of natural causes she could have lived a fuller life maybe even like maybe even past this maybe she probably would have just been put who knows because in reality maybe it sucks that she died the way she did due to hydration and negligence maybe she could have um just been put in a mental ward and lived the rest of her days out like that but this is where i kind of like maybe it's kind of good that she died this way it sucks that she suffered yes but maybe it's kind of good because either way she was going to suffer because it seems like none of the medication that they had for her could have helped her if we weren't advanced medically as we are today that was back in the 70s you know we are far surpassed medically in technology and in medicine so who knows 
I mean, we'll never know the answer to that because she's long gone. But again, thank you for joining me on today's episode of Strange Talk Podcast. Strange Talk Podcast is a weekly podcast dedicated to all things strange. And I know I say weekly, even though I haven't been keeping up with that deal. I'm sorry. I get busy. I get, I don't sometimes have time to record. I know I apologize, but you know, hopefully you're listening to this episode and you enjoyed it and you got through the tape recordings of Annalise Raquel. Um, so yeah, but if you want to follow me on Instagram <clears throat> at strange talk podcast, again, that's Instagram at strange talk podcast. You can find out and keep up to date with everything that I'm doing to working on new episodes, what I plan to work on and just me being stupid and sending you memes that you don't really care for. But yeah, if you want to send me an email, Oh, also, before I get into it, I haven't officially made this announcement yet. I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I am probably not going to be doing this week in crime any longer because one, I don't really think you guys enjoy them all that much. Maybe you do. I don't know. I'm sure there's few of you that don't, and there's probably more of you that hate them, and there's some that do. Who knows? I don't really know. But I'm probably not going to be doing them any longer, so that way I just have more time to focus on strictly just episodes and doing the research that I can do for said episodes. So yeah, I don't know I'm officially going to do it. I might have one this Wednesday. I don't know. But who knows? It's just if I can have the time to do it. Because just struggling now to even just do the episodes that I'm doing for you guys now to try and keep up with my schedule and everything. You know, who knows? Hopefully I can. If not, then I'll officially make it a statement. So be sure to follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. Again, that's Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. So you can find out if I'm going to keep up for doing them or not. But if you want to send me stuff through Instagram, you can do so. If you want to send if you if you want to send me an e- email, <laughs> you can do that too. I don't know why I'm struggling to talk, but I always do. Uh, you can do so. At strange talk podcast at outlook.com. Again, what's that email? That's strange talk podcast at outlook.com. So, again, thank you for choosing to listen to Strange Talk Podcast because there are plenty of podcasts, true crime podcasts out there, but you chose to listen to good old me. Uh, so, again, uh, thank you. I can't thank you enough because without you, Strange Talk Podcast would not even be where it is today. But having said that, stay safe, don't get possessed. And as always, stay strange.